From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another Stuck at Home special of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today we're virtually catching up with actor and creator O.T. Fagbenle. You probably know him as Luke on The Handmaid's Tale, and if you haven't already, you'll soon be getting to know him better as Max. O.T., thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're in the middle of traveling right now. You just traveled to London from Tanzania, and today, the day of our recording, is the day that Max drops on Hulu. Yeah. So I'm sure it's been crazy. Yeah, it's been pretty busy. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. You know, like lots of that press stuff and things and and chatting to friends and stuff. But really, I, I just got back to England from Tanzania, so... It's a chance to socially distance, see my family for the first time, some of my younger siblings. So that, that's really the highlight of my day. Oh, good. So jumping into Max, this is a show that you wrote, produced, co-directed some episodes, are starring in. You're basically wearing all of the hats. Yeah. Tell us about it. How did it begin? Well, you know, I've been developing stuff for a while, done some shorts and the shorts with the award circuits and all that kind of stuff. And then I basically had an opportunity. I pitched this idea to Channel 4 about this pop star who was failing and trying to make a comeback, this kind of anti-hero type thing. And they, they really loved it. And they, they were like, right, make it. And I really had my exec producer as my brother, Luti, and we made this pilot, which is really like three shorts. They're on YouTube. And they really dug that. And so they asked me to write some scripts. And so I wrote some scripts. And then they commissioned the series. I mean, obviously, it's a lot more, you know, circuitous than that. But that, that's the basic rundown of it. You were writing the scripts while you were shooting Handmaid's Tale. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it took me a couple of years, really, to get the six episodes down, you know, starting from scratch in the new series. And so, yeah, I'd write during Handmaid's. Actually, after the, I think it was the first or the second series of Handmaid's, I then stayed in Toronto for a summer and wrote there. But a lot of the writing I did, or at least the development I did, I, I did working with professional improvisers from Second City. And so we had some incredible Canadian actors and actresses come in and, and help me, you know, beat out the ideas. Are you a member of Second City or did you go there with the goal to work with them? No, you know what? It's one of those kind of serendipitous things where the hotel I was staying at was across the road from Second City. And I knew I'd like to work with actors and kind of direct my way into writing. And so I just walked in there and asked to see the principal and it kind of <laughs> went on from there. What kind of work would you do with them while you were developing? Would you kind of pitch them a scenario and just let them go for it? Yeah, so I was working with a script editor called Bruce Peary, and he and I would sit down and we'd chat out a storyline. And so we chat out storyline, A story, B story, C story. This is what happens with our main characters. These are our antagonists, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I would come out with like 16 scenes. Mm -hmm. And so I know what happens in the scene. I know that character A comes in wanting X from character B, and there's going to be a conflict. And at the end of it, we're going to come out with solution C. And so I would go in, I'd pitch the whole episode to the six or seven actors we'd have there. And then I'd say, right, we're going to start with scene one. You're playing character A, you're playing character B. This is what you want. This is what you want let's improvise it. And so we'd improvise the scene and then I'd be like, okay, great. And we're going to make some changes. Um, character A, you're going to be drunk. Character B, you're going to be more resistant. And I'm going to replace actor play character A with this other actor. And you come in and let me see your version of it. And I, I would have men playing women, women playing men, black people playing white people, white people, black people, whatever. You know, like it was a free-for-all. And as it would develop, I would get more and more ideas, which I'd put in. And maybe we'd do each scene about three, four times. Anyway, we'd spend a day. And in a, in a day, we'd get through about half an episode. And then I would sit down in a coffee shop and I would just write and listen to the recordings. And funnily enough, 
I mean, I'd be really interested to go back and check it out, but there was very little actually verbatim that was taken from the improvisations. I mean, there, there were definitely were bits, but a lot of times it was just like, it helped me flesh out and understand the characters and understand different ways, unexpected ways that the jokes could go. And so I would build on them and write on them. But, you know, they, they were such a valuable part of the, the process for sure. And how long was that part of the process? I mean, what happened is I wrote over the summer and by the end of the summer, I had six episodes. So we would do, then I would go off and do rewriting and stuff like that. And we were supposed to go into production that September, I believe. And I mean, it's a long story, but basically we were going into pre-production. We were casting, we were da-da-da, and the channel said, look, we want some changes. We're not ready to go into production yet. It was a heartbreaker. Mm -hmm. And most of the times when a channel tells you that, that means they are not going to make your show anymore. And they reassured us that they were going to make the show and that, you know, they just needed some changes. I mean, to be honest, I, I imagine there was some politics involved. It wasn't all about the show, but, there, you know, there were some sh issues with the show. And eventually, but they, they kept to their word. And uh, we retooled and rejigged and tweaked and improved and then made it the following year. So that's part of the reason why it took so long to write. Were they story changes? Because the show itself can be very raunchy at times and really push the comedy. Right. So was it that it went too far and you needed to pull back? Or was it actual story that had to change? You know, it's it's interesting. It's hard for me to see woods in the trees, and I'd be very curious to read the first drafts and the last drafts. You know, something I haven't done that comparison because, for my tastes, there were very incremental changes that we actually made by the end of it. I mean, to be honest, there was some pushback on some fundamental things, which I just said I wasn't going to do. Changes that I just didn't believe we should make. And to be fair, and to the kudos of the commissioners, you know, they had some great ideas, but also when I kind of said, look. This is really important to the, my vision of the show. They backed me. It, it took some push, but they backed me. And I really appreciate it for that. So I don't know. One of the episodes had quite fundamental plot changes. And I think there was some development of the characters. In particular, Tamsin, the main female lead, I think there was some development to do there, some rounding out of her character. So those are some of the main ways that it, it improved. But also a big part of it was also tooling up production-wise. We brought on Phil Clark, legendary executive producer. You know, it was funny actually, because we had a, a meeting and they said, you know, because it, me, my brother has got a long history of making music videos and some features, but never really had made television. And I never really, really made television. So there was kind of like a lack of experience on our team. And they basically said, look, we need someone on your team that can tell us to fuck off. And right now you don't have anyone who's got enough weight to tell us to fuck off. And so we went and got someone who could tell them to fuck off, who was Phil Clark, who, who never used that phrase, funnily enough. In fact, almost the opposite. Phil was like, one of the secrets to being successful in the industry is how much shit you can eat. It's like, how much shit can you take and still keep going? And that was very disheartening, but I think probably very good advice. Max is about a formerly famous boy band member who is trying to make a comeback as a solo artist. And he is basically juggling his need to be authentic with his need to be loved and famous. And so it's a really complicated character that must have been just absolutely fun to play. I'd love to hear about your process with him. Yeah, you know, I guess in some ways he kind of echoed parts of my journey, of my, you know, I guess ambivalence between, you know, going for the art. I was a theatre actor for many, many years and very happy to it. And, and then also the idea of being popular and being on TV and stuff like that. So I guess there was some of that autobiographically played out. And then also I'd kind of gone through this terrible heartbreak, you know, and I was trying to recover from that. And so I guess that played out a little bit as well. 
So I guess developing him in some ways was like a process of kind of like enhancing and overblowing and exaggerating lots of parts of myself that I despise and then an opportunity to kind of like play them out. That's on the kind of like more personal level. But also as I developed it, I realized that I was kind of like interested in exploring a broader cultural phenomena where because of social media, it's just like some big validation app. Mm. We constantly put forward not our true selves, but our idea of ourselves, our presentation of ourselves, our ego. And we put it out there and we hope for the likes and then we might change what we post depending on how much validation we get. And it's quite an obscene process that that evolves the mind in in certain ways of thinking. I feel sorry for young people who are going up against the brilliant minds of Harvard and Yale who are in programming suites trying to manipulate our fickle minds. So I also kind of want to talk about that. You know, not everyone is a pop star, but, but I think on to some level, everyone who's on social media has some kind of desire to be validated by their peers. So the, the, the process of developing Max was kind of like a confluence of those two things. When you were writing him, knowing that you were going to play him, did you write with yourself in mind or were you able to kind of separate the two between writing and playing the character? You know, my personal process generally as an actor is I don't ever see my characters as not me. I kind of feel that they are me. And I like to believe that there is quite a bit of differentiation between the characters I play. And so the way that's achieved is just by leaning into different parts of me. I once Mm -hmm. read the psychologist said that by the age of three, a human being has experienced every emotion, murderous rage, jealousy, love, you know, because all of those things are in us in, in different quantities. And so I just believe that as I write each character and as I think about Max all of the characters are me you know my son is me I was a geeky kid at school who would get these terribly strong crushes and I am Tamsin as well that kind of like is sometimes socially awkward and probably unnecessarily verbose and 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 so like that's how I think about writing if you're tapping into parts of yourself that aren't necessarily the comfortable parts of yourself are you able to leave it on set or do you take it home with you (laughs) I did get accused of being a bit maxish at various points. You know, I guess I do find it hard to entirely differentiate. And part of my process as an actor, even outside of Max, is like, I know some actors who can freaking turn it on. They are there and they're having a cup of tea and chatting about the world gossip and they click their fingers and they're the other character and they're crying. Unfortunately, I don't have that capacity. I have to really embody and live through. It's boring. I tell you, I wish I didn't have to. (laughs) But over 20 years of being an actor, I've realized that that's what produces the best results for me. So, yeah. So Max comes home. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know what? At the end of the day, I've got to have some meaningful conversations with costume designers and and makeup artists and Nick Collette, the other director on it, you know, and and not be a, you know, so I'm not some kind of like, I'm not entirely Max-ish, but there is some bloodlines, I guess, maybe. Now, your brother worked on this project with you as executive producer, Lutik. Yeah, yeah, he did. What is it like working with family? Because I do that as well. And for me, it's a gift because you can support each other like nobody else right, can, but you can right, also call each right. other on your shit like nobody else can. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess it all depends on what kind of siblings you have. My brother is one of the most inspirational people I know. He's incredible. He's so both supportive, but he dreams big and he's got a big drive. He was born on the 24th of July. We put him 24-7. He doesn't stop, you know, and, and exactly that thing, you know, like we were both desperate not to let each other down. 
and to bring out the best in each other. And we implicitly trust the intentions of each other, which is to create the best work we can create. And so, yeah, it's one of the biggest joys of my life being able to create Max with him. Other people who you worked with on this, one of which is Christopher Maloney, who plays Don Wilde, who uh, is just insane. (laughs) He was so much fun. But also he was in Handmaid's Tale. Is there a connection there or was that just a small world that you guys were both in that? Yeah, weirdly enough, it's the latter. I never met him on Handmaid's. I actually wanted him, asked for him because of his work on Happy, which I found so fun and unexpected. All his decisions were so interesting to me. And I thought, wow, if we could get him. I I really didn't think we could. And it was Luti again with his expansive mindset, which was like, we can get him. And we sent him the script. He fell in love with it. And we were just lucky enough that he was just on it. Because we didn't have all the bells and whistles. We didn't have big trailers. We didn't have trailers. We, we, We had nothing. He really came and slummed it with us. God bless him. I don't know. I just think he's brilliant in this. Speaking of not having trailers and all the bells and whistles for even the crew, this was really a passion project for everybody. And you kind of worked as a big collaborative family. Yeah, it was tough. You know, there were tears. It was hard. It was hard. And to be honest, not everyone who began the journey with us ended the journey with us for a number of reasons. But I I, I put some of it down to the fact that we were trying to create something which was beyond our means. We didn't have all the budget in the world and we wanted to create something brilliant. So we just had an expectation. And I tell you, there were a number of opportunities that we gave people including people from minority groups and stuff like that, to be heads of department where they'd never been heads of department before. But we believed in them. We believed in their skill. And we believed that their reason for not being head of department before this time was the industry creates blocks and in their process of hiring naturally discriminates. It doesn't need an individual to be racist. It's just the way of the industry. And so we gave a number of people their first go. And I tell you, they showed up so hard, so brilliantly. They brought a kind of, value to the show which i i just I'm, I'm so grateful for i'm so thankful for you know and it was just a reconfirmation that the benefits of diversity is not a tick box exercise the benefits of diversity isn't that you know everyone gets to feel that they're doing the united colors of benetton it's that there are brilliant artists here that which are underused and underutilized and it's to our benefit to give them that opportunity did any of them bring something completely surprising that you wouldn't have had without them Yeah, well, you know, in particular, just one that comes to my head is Joanna, our esteemed costume head. In episode two, there's this big industry party. And um, I've been to some weird parties in my life. And I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. And we were asking for these extras. And the extras we were getting, just I didn't believe them. It was very frustrating. I mean, for weeks and weeks, I'd look through these reams of of extras and just be like, this isn't, we're not going to have the party with this, with the party that's in my head, the parties that I've been to. And so Joanna came and she was like, well, look, I'm part of a scene, whether it's the fetish scene or the kink scene. I know people who are in there and we can both cast them, but they come with costume because that's their lifestyle. And so we managed through her to get half the party through her contacts and people who are above and beyond. I mean, I was walking around that party like, hell yeah, yeah. This is now a party that I'm both intrigued about and scared about. And, <laughs> and that's the way I want to feel. <laughs> so 
Max is making his comeback, fighting with trying to be authentic versus trying to be famous. And it brings up two opposing songs. One is a song about sex and frozen yogurt, kind of. And, <laughs> and the other is a song that has been stuck in my head since watching the show. The, you say that being with me is like rolling yeah. <laughs> Sing it, girl. It doesn't leave my head. Oh. <laughs> Who composed those? How did you come up with those songs? So Rolling Dice, I first wrote the verse for about 10 years ago. And then when we were trying to find a song for the show, I hit up one of my writing partners, Marcus Marr, a brilliant guy. And I said, look, this is where I am with the song. I'm having problems with the chorus. And so he went out and he wrote me some chords. And the way he writes the chords, he'd be like, like that. And so one day, edit out the longer version of the story, I sat down at a keyboard and I, and I wrote the lyrics to the chorus. So that's how that song came about. And then the other song, the soft serve song, someone came with a beat. I listened to like 20 beats and I was trying to find something which was like silly but real, corny but fun. And I just fell in love with this beat. And so I just wrote the lyrics and chorus and rap for that one day in the studio. But it was you who wrote the songs. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the uh, theme tune as well. But again, almost like with everything, there were collaborations. So Max plays three instruments and you had to learn to play drums and... Guitar and bass. So you learned those for the show? Yeah, yeah. That was ridiculous. As if I didn't have enough on my plate. So I, yeah, I was doing drumming lessons in the evenings and guitar lessons. It was stupid. But, um, <laughs> but actually, I still play guitar a little bit now. So I'm really glad that I got to do that. And, uh, and over this quarantine period with my nephew, I've been teaching him bass. So it was work that carried on. And now you're going to have to take Max on tour. Take Max on tour, God. <laughs> I don't know. They have, we have been pushing. Maluti's been pushing me to kind of record that song, the Rolling Dice song, so we can kind of like, you know, release it or whatever. You Spotify and stuff. Yeah, I guess we should. So... Max has some truly cringeworthy moments. Is that something you love to play or is that something that you like had to gear up to play? Uh, no, I love that. I love it. <laughs> because I love watching it in real life. I'm just like, oh my God, what a car crash is going on here. And, 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 and I guess I'm very sympathetic to why people or why I've in the past like dug yourself a hole and then keep digging, trying to redeem it. And I find that very amusing to me. And it comes from a great British tradition of that, from Steve Coogan to Ricky Gervais to Faulty Towers to Blackadder. I think it's the class thing. We're so obsessed with class and social climbing in, in England that I, I think that's where a lot of it comes from, people wanting to be better than they are, quote-unquote. Going back to the cast, you had mentioned, so he's heartbroken and desperate to win back his ex, Jordan Dunn, who was played by Jordan Dunn. Yeah, yeah. How did you meet her, get her involved? How did that happen? Um, my childhood friend, one of my best friends in the whole world, a guy called Stefano Moses, who's a very brilliant guy. He's an associate producer on the show. He was also our location manager, funnily enough. And he had a connect to Jordan, pitched it to her, showed us some of the material, the pilot that we shot. She loved it. We met with her and her team. I was very nervous. She was 
wouldn't be a very good actor, but she looked great and we got on very well. So I wrote quite modestly for her. Then we had our first rehearsal together. And like I said, I would deal a lot with improvisation. So I did a very similar thing I did with the Second City people. I said, hey, look, this is the scene. You're going to do this and I'm going to say some stuff to you and you say some stuff back and let's see what happens. And we did it. By the end of the rehearsal, I went back to my producer, Ali, Karen and, and Luti, and I said, we've got a problem because she's so good. We're going to need more of her in the show. And we did. We boosted what she had to do a lot. Was there a lot of improvisation on set? Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, particularly with Jordan. You know, that last scene was pretty strictly scripted. At least her part was. I always go off on a tangent. But everything else that we had, and we had loads of material that we didn't use, to be honest. Me and her just played around. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a great chemistry on set. But generally speaking, we try and do the script. But there is leeway. And like Helen Monks, who plays my assistant in it, she's brilliant. She comes out and we will just do another take and we will just be like, keep going. Give us some. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Chris and Pippa, they're, they're all really talented. Pippa Bennett-Warner, who plays Tamsin, your manager. So she's on her personal mission of repping true artists and creating something beautiful for the world. And then her very first client who lands in her lap is Max, who's fighting against right. being a novelty act. But that was a really fun relationship to play with. And you said you had to develop yeah. it more in the beginning. So I'd love to hear more about the process of her character. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a funny one because I think sometimes as a writer, and especially because I know I work with improvisation. So sometimes what I see on the script isn't what the execs might sometimes see. So sometimes there would be notes and I'd be like, I know it won't be like that because I'm going to cast it in a certain way, but it's my first rodeo. So why should anyone believe me about that? Yeah. And so, but that notwithstanding, we did get some very good notes. Tanya, who works at Val, you know, gave some great notes for her as well. And then Pippa herself, Pippa Benawana, is such a talented actress. She predominantly works in drama. She's a rather trained classical actress who's done Shakespeare at the Globe and all sorts. You know, she's the real deal. And she brought such detail and differentiation and humor and truth to Tamsin. I am very indebted to her, actually, to how she fulfilled that part. And you also went to RADA, so you're both alum. Did you know each other or were you different time periods? Different time periods by quite a bit. But we did know each other. The, the Black acting community is very smaller and then it, it was even smaller 10 years ago. And so everyone knew everyone. And so, yeah, we bumped into each other. We knew each other, you know, after the auditions, we'd have a good old laugh, you know. So, yeah, that was great. You made a point to have an adopted son character. Yeah. That was such a fun relationship to play in <laughs> because Max has so much depth to him while being so shallow. So it's just fascinating all the tools you gave yourself to kind of really show that he cares about people. Right. I would love to hear more about your reasoning for having an adopted son, your reasoning for him having a crush on a non-binary character. I thought the whole thing was yeah. wonderful. I love it too. I love those guys. I love those young actors. So basically, you know, I, I think it's quite amusing, the whole thing about being a celebrity and then adopting. When I say amusing, I mean, I really respect it, actually. People get shit for it. It's like, hey, you're dedicating a lot of time to a young person. Kudos to that. But I also just think the phenomenon is interesting. So I thought it would be great for Max and also kind of gives him a bit more heart. So I don't know. It came pretty early, that idea. Funnily enough, the idea for the non-binary love affair, it's really interesting to me because originally that character was a female. And in fact, the first time round we auditioned, we were only auditioning women for that part. And I think part of the feedback that came back was 
just the concern that maybe there were a lot of female characters that were particularly sexual because you had Siren in episode three and you had Rocks in episode two and then you had Christopher Maloney's wife and then you had the uh, assistant Rose. And so we were all kind of like sexually forward. But I, I really didn't want to change that dynamic. I really liked the dynamic of Alan, the son, being the sub, as it were, in, in that relationship. And so I wasn't sure how to fix it. And then I thought, well, what if we just change the gender then? If that's the issue, then let's just change the gender and to get that diversity in. And so then we auditioned some young guys. And yeah, Sunny, like a bright, shining light. I was adamant. Yeah. Like the moment I saw his that I was just, yeah, that's who, who it is. And it was a bit of a shock to Alan because he, of course, auditioned with a lot of very pretty <laughs> girls. And then suddenly, you know, and he comes from a Muslim background. So it was a little bit of a, he was like, oh, oh, oh really? But, but kudos to him. You know, he really, he wanted the party, believed in it. And they just had a great chemistry. I mean, it's an echo of my teen love affairs and stuff, you know, like infatuations and unrequited love. mystical unicorn of a crush. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, but what was so great about it, because it came from a character that was originally written for a female, there was no comment on the non-binary character. It just was life and everybody was okay with it. And I thought that was really refreshing. Yeah, thanks for noticing that. That was a very conscious decision and there were notes for us to mention it. And why don't we have a conversation about it and da da da. And, you know, I'd been in a show looking for HBO, which is, you know, very popular cult gay drama kind of thing. And And I just... It's it's a funny one because I think for people in minority groups, the fact of their minority identity is quite a relevant part to their day-to-day life. But it's not necessarily what we talk about all the time. Like, all our storylines don't have to be about that. Like, we had the 90s and the 2000s to have those conversations kind of thing. And I just felt, here we are in 2020, it's possible for us just to find out about these two human beings and how do they try and match together. And it doesn't have to be about the issues, you know. And of course, the issues are very important, but that was just something I just wanted to attempt in this show. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my when dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of worth. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life, and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time.
in a completely different direction. The Handmaid's Tale is basically a whole other world. And I'd love to jump into Luke a little bit because he's a far cry from Max. In this last season, he is patient and loving and he's raising his wife's child from another man. And he faces his wife's oppressors and rapists, not to mention her boyfriend. So uh, a lot happened for Luke in the last season of Handmaid's Tale. Tell me about it. A lot happened, yeah. What was that like going through? You, you know what? That's what actors, we come for that. Oh, yeah, make me go through pain. Yeah. So, like, it's a joy when you've got great writing and you get to act opposite Samira and Yvonne and Elizabeth, you know, Joe and Max. Yeah, please. So, of course, Luke is going through the run of the mill, but as OT, that's why I came into the profession. That's the kind of turmoil that rocks my boat. Yeah. We had Bruce Miller on the show a few weeks ago to talk about Handmaid's Tale, and Bruce talked about how the set and the writer's room are always actually really lighthearted because you kind of have to counterbalance how heavy the material is. Is that your experience on set? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of jokes on set. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's lovely. And, and Bruce also, I've got to say, actually, was very generous, as was Warren. But Bruce in particular and Colin Watkinson, our DP and sometimes director, in that when we were shooting Handmaids and I was developing Max, Bruce let me come into the writer's room and sit down. And, and Mike Barker, who should be nominated for an Emmy every year for Handmaids, he let me shadow him on the final episode of, of season three. And, and just like there was so much generosity from that guy in supporting me in making my first show. So and anyway, that, that somewhat speaks to the joy and openness and love that's apparent in the show, yeah. Do you have a piece of advice that they gave you that stands out to you? You know what? Bruce gave me a couple of goodies. He once told me that the, one of the best book he read on writing was a book on drawing. And, and, and one of the things that stuck out to me is that like, and I'm going to butcher what he told me, but basically it, it was like when you're drawing a person, you don't have to start at the top. You don't have to start at the beginning or the, you know, the feet or you don't have to do a rough outline. You don't have to. You can just take any discrete piece. And the example I think he gave was like if a person was standing there with their hand on their hip, you could start with the space between their arm and their body. And that can be the starting point. And you can think of the same thing with a script or a scene or a sentence. You don't need to start at the beginning. The first thing you write of a script does not have to be scene one. And the first thing you write in a scene does not have to be the first lines written. That you can find a discrete part and grow out of there. And that, that was a really useful piece of information I got. So what was the first part of the drawing for you with Max? The funeral scene was something that really stuck out. I remember I'd gone to my sister's house, my big sister, who is just, you know, such an important part of my life, and her husband, who is my brother now. And I remember pitching them who Max was. And I was like, he's the kind of guy who, let's say there was a funeral, and I just started pitching it around, and they were cracking up as I was kind of like acting it out. And I think that was kind of like an anchor for him. He's that guy who sees a celebrity opportunity at the funeral. (laughs) Oh, Max. (laughs) So I know you can't talk about anything because Marvel is notoriously secretive. No, I'm going to tell you everything. This is the interview where we're going to get all the excuses. Can you tell us, though, emotionally, like, what is it like to be a part of the Marvel Universe with Black Widow? You've said this is, after a 20-plus year career, the biggest job you've had. Yeah, it it is. And an incredible honor. I mean, to be honest, it's a bit surreal, honestly. When I graduated drama school, 
I had no ambitions to be in movies. I had no ambitions to be on television. Zero. I just wanted to be a theatre director. I mean, that's all I really understood. And that was all that was in my mind. I was very content with that future, seeing the decades ahead of me, performing on various stages and performing some great roles and plays and stuff. So in a way, it's weird because being part of something like the Marvel Universe was never part of my original dream. Mm. And not because it's not really attractive and amazing and wonderful. It, it was just something else. It was like, do you want to be an NBA basketball player? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's, that's not part of reality. And so as it's happened, it's very surreal and doing things like Comic-Con and things like that. I feel like I really appreciate it. I don't take it for granted at all because... I don't know. I'm a person who believes that luck really plays a huge part in the outcomes of people's lives. And, that, and I believe I've been incredibly lucky. Has the required secrecy been just killing you? <laughs> nah, I think it's hilarious. You know, it's so funny because I'm not an industry person. Like I don't read industry mags. You know, I'm embarrassingly, I had to start watching television. I had to learn about television. And so to me, it's all a fun fair, you know. And people keep on thinking like, oh, am I taskmaster or whatever? And I just think it's fun. Like to me, it's, I don't know, it's not burning me inside. Like I really care about my family. And I've, I'm working on a charity called the ABC Foundation, which provides tech opportunities for young people in, in Africa. And like, these are the things which I think were important. These are the things <laughs> that like burn me. You know, this is fun. Can you talk about at all the audition process? Since as far as I understand, they don't tell you anything when you're auditioning for a character. Well, you know what? I will tell you some stuff that I've not on any interview before. Basically, the audition sides I got were not the same as the part I played. Like, it was completely different. And I got sent them. I was on holiday with my then girlfriend. And to be honest, when I first got the audition, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. I was writing Max at the time. I was just like, I'm not going to do that. Because I was already, like, embarrassing enough you know, my then girlfriend, I told her, look, we're going to go on holiday, but I'm going to be working from 9am to 1pm writing every day during our holiday to Mexico. And so I was like, I'm not now going to take 1pm to 2pm to put down an audition that I'm never going to get because they're going to give it to someone else. I was just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not putting myself on tape. And so she was like, you should. And I was like, look, I can't, I want to be respectful to you and everything like that. And that's her heart. She was very generous. And she was like, no, you put yourself on tape. So anyway, long story short, I put myself on tape for this quite different character. And it was a banging tape. At some point, I feel like I want to share it because it was like, that's one of the best auditions I ever done. And at the end of it, she was like, this is good. You're going to get this. And I was like, no. Nah. Doing a great tape does not mean you do get it. I've done a bunch of great tapes and no one's even called me back to tell me thanks for sending it. Like, no expectations. So I just like sent it off. And then I was told that I would do a screen test with Scarlett and it was me and six other guys. And I wasn't a favorite. <laughs> I was number four on the list or something like that. I don't know. But to do a screen test, you have to sign a contract. And the contract that I would sign would mean that I wouldn't be available to shoot mags. Mm. So I was like, I don't know if I can sign this contract. Like, I don't know if I can do that. Because doing a Marvel Universe, that's the biggest, like you said, the biggest job I could ever hope for. But like, Max is my heart. It's something I'm doing with my brother. I'm going to let my brother down. Like, I had to have that conversation with my bro. I was like, bro, I've got this screen test and I don't know what to do because I don't want to let you down and you know he staked his company on this show you know it was a really challenging time and, and eventually I was just like I don't know if I can sign a contract that says I can't do max and so please go and talk with them and my reps are like I don't know if they'll take that they're marvel and then I got a call about a week later my agent called me up and was like right we've got a problem and I was like oh okay 
And she was like, well, they've just offered you the role. Oh my God. <laughs> I even know you I got it, like, but I still got chills. <laughs> I know. I was like, what? I don't believe this. I was just beside myself. I remember just like, I was so happy and joyful. But then at the same time, I had this like, am I going to have to call my brother up and tell him that we're not going to do the show? And I was like, listen, I said to my agent, Julia, who's amazing, Julia Buckhold, I said, we, how we got to make it work? We got to make it work. And you know what? It was just like, I don't know, luck, fate, destiny, whatever. Handmaids, for whatever reasons, was running late. And so they said that we're not going to be shooting in September. So they were pushed four months. And then we just asked Marvel, hey, look, you fit my filming into these two months and push those there. And then we asked Channel 4 if we could push Max there. And they all overlapped like this. But I managed to get to do all three. It was so surreal and I felt so grateful. I felt so grateful for Marvel and Kate Shortland who assured me when I got to speak to her. She's an indie filmmaker and I was like, look, this is my baby. And she said, we can make it work. We'll make it work, you know? And so I'm so grateful to her and to Marvel who were surprisingly just flexible and responsive. And I feel very grateful for that. It's awesome. So again, after a 20 year career, is it weird that now you're popping up on lists of actors to watch, even though you've been around for decades? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I have a bit of a kind of, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I really try to not care about that. You know, like, I, of course I care about it. Like, I do care about it. I freaking love it. Like, let me, let awards <laughs> rain on my face. But at the same time, I just try and remind myself what's important, what's real, that if you get too much of a sense of self from others, then you're, you're really dangerous because... The world can be fickle and everything changes. And, and so, look, you know, it's a lesson I'm trying to relearn and teach myself every day to be present and to be grateful for the small things and stuff like that. And so to, I try not to put too much stock. Of course, I, like I said, I freaking love it. But, but I try not to put too much stock in those things because I know it's not a sustainable way of having peace. So speaking about what's real, can you tell us more about ABC Foundation? Yeah, you know what? As my career grew and I realized how lucky I, I, I was getting paid better. I was getting paid American money for a start. You know, I was like, look, I have responsibility. I, I've got more to give. And so I started this charity, which I've got tech passion. I'm, I'm passionate about tech and I'm passionate about young people. And we matched up with this organization called Induna Girls in Zimbabwe. And, and they do exactly that. They give tech training to young women in Zimbabwe. And, and some of it is as rudimentary as teaching them how to turn on a computer uh, write an email, go online, you know, because these people don't have necessarily access to the internet. And so over the last two years, we have provided tech training to over 100 young people. We created a tech hub, which has solar panels and cooling system, which is mobile. And the young people can come there and have access to over a dozen computers we have. We've paid for them to get tuition, both on the remedial level and also in things like robotics. I just think tech is the future. And for people in developing nations to keep up and to compete, they need access to that. And so very recently, Elizabeth Moss, Florence Pugh, Angelica Ross all joined me on a on an Insta Live, which people can check out. They were so generous in their time to help fundraise because we're aiming to create more of these tech hubs so we can provide access to more and more people in Zimbabwe. Yeah. 
That's awesome. If anyone wants to check out ABC Foundation, it's abcfoundation.me. That was available. And then people can also see on my Instagram, it's a link in my bio. If people want to find out more about it or to donate, we take both money and also things like computers, old computers, old smartphones, all of these things can be put to real use to young people in Zimbabwe. We'll also put the link in the notes to this show. So if you're listening to the podcast, go into the show notes and you can just click the link and go right there. Great. Thank you. So classically trained actor from RADA, Accolades aside, fame aside, money aside, if you had to choose one, would it be theater or film? Oh, it's no brainer. It's theater. It's not even close, really. But I don't do it now because those things aside, like it's hard and it doesn't pay anywhere near as well. But I was born for this stage. What is the difference to you between a live audience and a film audience? The audience is definitely a huge part of it. That relationship with an audience, that thing that changes each performance as you feel them and have a relationship with them. But also a lot of it is the writing. There's a style of writing which is available in theatre, which isn't available in television. You know, like someone told me, you know, you watch television, but theatre has an audience. They they, they listen to the words. And what's amazing about theatre to me is that it's not unusual. In fact, it's very common for me to do something written 400 years ago in Shakespeare or to do something written in the 80s or the 60s, Lorraine Hansberry. And and so what we're saying, the best works of art from the English language are available to an actor to do again and again. I can't go and play my favorite character in Game of Thrones. Like That's not available to me to go, oh, you know, The Wire. Okay, well, actually, I'm going to do The Wire next year. Like, I can't do the best of television again and then do my interpretation of True Detective or whatever. Like, I can't. That's once it's in television, once you're done, it's pretty much done, you know, unless 30 years is passed. In theatre, you can have four productions of King Lear going on at once. So it's it's that. The last play I did, I did a play called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom by August Wilson. It's one of the greatest plays in the English language. It's absolutely heart-wrenching and stunning. It's a play I wanted to do for 20 years. And that's available to me on stage. And so, yeah, that's a big part of it. Do you have a favorite line from any character you've ever played one that just really you would tattoo on your arm if you could oh god yeah i don't know commitment foe what am i going to tattoo on my arm um i don't know there's so many it would probably be a line from Lucutio. Shakespeare is just unbelievable kind of thing. I don't know. Nothing really comes straight to mind now. But yeah, it would definitely be one of the Bard's mm-hmm. lines. It's just, I would listen. I did Romeo and Juliet for four months on tour. Little regional theatres across the country. And you'd sit in your dressing room. You could hear the play. And then every night, some new line would ping out. You'd be like, that line I'd never heard before could be the best line in another play. You know, yeah. Do you have a favourite Shakespearean insult? <laughs> I actually have a book of Shakespearean insults somewhere. Why is it one on top of your head? Canker Blossom is by far the best insult I think you could ever <laughs> throw to someone. Canker Blossom, the blossom of the canker. Oh, God. That's a good one. Any final thoughts before we close out? Well, yeah, just, you know, that, I'd love you guys to watch Max and then and, and hit me up on the socials. And just if you liked it, tell me. If you didn't, just fine. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> How max of you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, I I guess if there's one thing that I've been contemplating a bit recently is that it's a really stressful time, I think, 
at the moment. Of course, with like coronavirus and, and the civilized matters and the environment and it's crazy politics. And I think it's so stressful. And I don't know, I've been reminded a lot this week how important it is to kind of like look after one's mental health as much as possible, you know, to be kind to yourself and to find ways to find peace and to be present and stuff. So yeah, I guess if I was going to say anything, it was just like, that's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. And so I wish everyone the best of luck with that. Otifag Benley, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone should check out Max. It is now out on Hulu. And I can't wait for Black Widow in hopefully a few months. Yeah, it's fun chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Otifag Benley. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. And we want to hear from you. If you like something, let us know. And if you don't, let us know what we could do better. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.